Hello and welcome to the Block Solid Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of technology, property, the newest developments in this world, blockchain and crypto, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. I'm Yael Tamar, CEO and co-founder of SolidBlock, pioneer in real estate tokenization, and I'd like to welcome my friend, Pat O'Meara. Hi, Pat. How are you doing? Great. Good to be with you. Good to be with you as well. So Pat is the founder of Invenium and also the CEO, right? The Invenium Capital Partners. And I've known Pat for quite some time because this is like one of my favorite companies in the industry doing extremely cool things. So Pat, why don't you start by kind of telling us about Invenium, what you do and, um, you know, how you started the whole thing? Sure. We say we're an operating system for data in a decentralized economy. Right now, when you have assets that are data-rich and low-frequency trading, so real estate, infrastructure, private equity, those types of assets, you typically have an oracle who is telling you what the value is, but it's only market-tested once every 8, 10 years, right? And what we're doing is we're facilitating more frequent valuation of the asset in order to value the capital stack so you can trade the capital stack. And that doesn't mean that shares of a piece of a capital stack of an office building are gonna trade every day, but what you're doing is you're allowing better leverage, better collateralization, better lending rates, better borrowing costs, but also carrying costs for assets on your balance sheet. And in order to get that valuation, you need to prove the state of the building, right? So any asset that there's entropy, right? When you trade Bitcoin or Ethereum, it is what it is, right? But if it's a building, you need to know has the maintenance of the mechanical system up to snuff? What's the foot traffic? Are the leases being paid? Are there defaults? And right now, all of that is reported not in real time. It's reported through intermediaries. And what we do is we credential the data at its place of rest. We anchor a cryptographic proof of that data in the payload of a block. We index it in a federated data room, and then we give role-based access control to that data where it sits at its place of rest. So no data ever comes into our system, you know, in, except through the own, if the owner wishes it. And then what happens is we credential that data, we prove that data, we commute trust in that data through the blockchain as to what the condition of the building is that moment. We can then push that data through to other tools like valuation, risk analysis, waterfall tools to give real-time visibility into the value of that asset. Does that make sense? Well, absolutely. Are you then becoming the Oracle? No, we're the operating system for the data and we're letting other people be their own Oracles, right? Where there's paper query on their own data systems, right? So we're working with, as an example, one of the largest HVAC companies in the world where literally their data systems, they have a bunch of information that parents want about the quality of the air that their children rooms are in. We put little QR codes on the doors. Uh, we're in testing with this right now. We're going to go live next month. But where we put QR codes on the door, the parent takes a snapshot of that QR code. It mints an NFT because the phone number in the system and the QR code and the geolocation, we tie those three things together, validate it. That that NFT then is associated that you're the parent of little Susie and she's in third grade. And then what we can do is literally every time you press a button, you can, using the sensors that are in the lights, you can get real-time air quality information that's less than 10 seconds old. 
And with that information, you understand the quality of the air that little Susie who has allergies, you know, how she's struggling. But that NFT, we've created an oracle to that NFT that has unique rights. And what happened is the government, that city municipality didn't need to create a data center with security rights and login rights and role-based access control, but we used a decentralized Web3 protocol to allow Train to have a pay-per-query model that their client, that municipality, is given rights to the parent to access that. And it's saving an enormous amount of money, and that municipality is giving real-time information to parents, right? That's total Web3, that's delivery and we're live on that today. I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. But yeah, oh, yes, this is we're awesome. Right. I mean, this is a, this is incredible. I love this stuff. So this is what blockchain is about, right? So kind of decentralizing the rights control and giving access on different levels, right? Because the parent obviously doesn't need access to all of the data regarding the school, just that specific piece of data that they're entitled to. And all of that is cheaper and more efficient and more secure on the blockchain, right? And we're providing data sovereignty to the asset owner, to the data owner, et cetera. They control the data, who has rights to it. And we're giving them mechanisms to, via private data oracles, to inform smart contracts that then power, whether it's a fungible token, meaning an investor class, or a non-fungible token that's related to a single identity, that they have a right to that data. That's really cool. Now, back to your valuation stuff, like for... You know, obviously for buyers, valuation is super important, but also, you know, in the industry where we're trying to digitize assets that, you know, are traditional real world stuff, right? And very different from digital assets on the internet. The traditional assets, you know, in order for them to be even tokenizable or, you know, disability to digitize them depends on our ability to accurately gauge their value. Right, and the ongoing value monitoring and ongoing value uh, value estimation or valuation will fuel eventually will fuel trade. That's why I just kind of want to describe and uh, and maybe focus a little bit on the issue of how important the valuation is to the whole digital assets. And you guys are not only focused on real estate. I understand you also have other asset classes that you work with, right? Yeah. So any data-rich, low-frequency trading asset, we add value to, to, right? So if it's trading every minute, every second, me saying, here's what the value is, there's not much... Yeah, not the market much. establishes the value. That's exactly right. Now, we provide the data mechanisms for people to provide price discovery for more frequent market transactions. And this can be, we see this in any market, whether it's high yield bonds, municipal bonds, all the way down to real estate and infrastructure assets, where you have very low trading. And the reason you have very low trading is because the cost of discovery is so expensive, it prevents turnover. Right. right. Because to understand the value of that building to do real due diligence on it costs, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases. Awesome. You know, you have structural engineering, you have hazardous materials reports, you have mechanical engineering, electrical systems reports. But if you're going to go in and you have real time access to that data, that you have been given a time based permission to see the real time data, compare that performance, but not only that, look at their historical data and you know it hasn't been altered. And if anybody on any given moment changes that data, we're going to match those hashes yeah. and we're going to see this hash doesn't match. 
And what's in the payload of the block is the pointer and the hash, the ability to commute trust in the data. So just like you have audited financials, this is audited performance of the data where the data sits at rest in the asset owner's own systems, oh. right? And what that also means is when you sell the building and that data moves, what's in the payload of the block is still valid because it's validating the May 2018 data. The only thing that's moved is the pointer. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so this is yet, you know, and so that we're commuting trust in data. So just like you have in the US for the SEC, for public companies, you have the Edgar database and everybody, you know, says, yep, this is the data. Everybody relies on it, but it's one location. What we're right. doing is creating a mechanism to commute trust in data where the data still sits on the edge and you control your own data and you don't need to give it to somebody else who's going to restrict access to it, is going to charge for it and charge you to see yeah. your own data in comparative analytics. Does that make exactly. sense? Exactly. And then also, you know, you, you are not 100% guaranteed that your data won't be used by someone else. So, correct. Which has frequently yeah. happened, frequently happened, right? Yeah. It's frequently happened today. It happens today, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, and you're a custodian of your own data, which is amazing, right? You're giving that capability. All right. So that's revolutionary stuff right there. And I think that, you know, it's going to help us change the industry. But I wanted to ask you, Pat, so do you have your own machine learning algorithms kind of uh, understanding how to price assets? I mean, because I'm asking because in the real estate world, it's more or less, you know, their AVMs, automated valuation mechanisms and stuff like that. In the private equity world is a little bit more complicated and more subjective and different models are applied. So how do you actually structure this valuation? So we are not in the valuation business. We're in the data, right? We're an operating system for data. Gotcha. And what we do is somebody like JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, Houlihan Loki, Mercer, Deloitte, Value Strat. These are our partners, right? Mm -hmm. And so Cushman and Wakefield, the global vice chairman of Cushman and Wakefield sits on our board, is a large investor in our company. And Cushman and Wakefield spends, I want to say, 80 to 90% of their time for evaluation and data collection and data entry which is not knowledge work, but it's a pain in the neck, right? They're sending data requests. This doesn't look right. Here's what's happening. But not only that, in that six to 12-week period where they're collecting data, some of the original data grows stale, so they have to refresh that and ask that again, right? What we do is the first valuation when somebody uses our tool, literally, it takes 120 to 150% of the time to do that first valuation. The second valuation takes 30% of the time. The third valuation takes 15 but then literally all the data is being fed on demand, being fed directly into Argus or whatever the valuation model is, so that when I'm that JLL or Cushman and Wakefield valuation expert, I'm literally coming in, sitting down, all the data's in, it's 100% click through, I can see all the source documentation, but then the output that I generate is also tooled using Invenium IO so that their end client can click through and see all the underlying data so whether it's a bank, et cetera, they can see it. The reason this matters is we provide total transparency to all the data inputs going into that model. And so Cushman and Wakefield, they are the third party, right? That the GP isn't valuing the asset themselves, or they got a third party valuing it. But why this matters is for a real estate company, a holding company or an operating company or an insurance company, when you can have observable inputs, it impacts how you carry that asset on your balance sheet. Most real estate companies that are operating companies hold them at book minus accumulated depreciation, right? If we can give them monthly marks with observable inputs, 
sophisticated models delivered by Cushman and Wakefield with in-period comps, right, of like assets. And it doesn't have to be exact asset. It can be like asset using what's called ASC 815 for comparable assets. Literally, they can carry that at fair market value as a level two asset. This has a huge bunch in, bump in your balance sheet. Right. For an insurance company, and I'm sorry if I'm going too far on the, too far to this, but an insurance company mm-hmm. that holds real estate, mm-hmm. literally, when they hold that, they hold it on what's called Schedule BA. That has a 20% capital reserve requirement. If they want Schedule A, the best schedule, 10% capital reserve, they historically have not been able to hold individual real estate. They have to hold it through a fund. So they pay two and 20 to get that 50% reduction in capital. Now using our tool, Deloitte will prepare the documentation to move that asset from schedule BA to A. So literally insurance companies can own real estate assets directly and blockchain and tokenization is getting you better mechanisms to carry real estate assets on your balance sheet because it's better data. You can trust the data. You can see it real time which is what this is all about. And we're not even talking about the secondary trading and secondary markets or any of that stuff. We're just talking about better visibility, better valuations, better balance sheet treatment. For banks, they can hold, it changes their real estate. They can hold this, this affects their tier two capital, which affects distributions and their capital on hand. I mean, it's massive impact. Yeah, for, it affects for the ability trading of the asset owner to borrow, right? To borrow against the assets. So that's, that's yeah. everything. That's, that's exactly right. Because it's better data. It's trusted data that you know. So instead of carrying an asset book minus accumulated depreciation that you might have depreciated to zero, right? You've owned it for 30 years, 20 years, and you're holding that right. at a very low basis when it's really worth so much more. So it's your balance sheet, while accounting correct, is not reflective of the value of your assets. And what we're doing right. is unlocking the value of that assets through better data, and we're commuting the trust in that data through blockchain. Yeah, absolutely. I know uh, one industry that will benefit immensely from this is oil and gas when the assets depreciate right, to, to a zero. We are working with a company out of Texas. We're, we've just begun to work with them. We're formalizing our partnership with them right now, where for royalties, they're valuing each well and each asset one by one, where you can understand what the value that is yeah. and all of the operating expenses against that well. So an oil company can't just arbitrarily allocate expenses and you just get whatever comes in your check. You know, whatever comes in the mail, that's your royalty check. And you have no idea, you have no ability to audit expense allocation. We now begin to prepare that. Does that make sense? And they're using our data systems, our operating systems to validate data to create audit trails. That's really cool. I love it. So you mentioned the Web 3.0, and you also mentioned the ability to pull data from sensors. And, you know, from basically my research for the last two, three years, why Web 3.0 is taking so long to get developed and deployed, I see that the biggest two problems is number one, data storage, you know, how the data is stored, and it's so not scalable, even with, you know, all the advancements in blockchain technology, storage is a major issue. And second issue is data processing power, where, you know, you need immense amounts of power because of the way, you know, the inefficiencies, I guess, in the storage as well, and uh, communication, right? So you have like levels of cloud and, you know, fog and everything else. So I'm wondering if whatever you guys are doing is going to help us implement Web3.0 or launch much faster. You know, we say that we're data 3.0 for Web 3.0, right? We are not better software. We're a better architecture. Yep. Literally, 
what we're doing is we're pushing everything to the edge and the blockchain doesn't need to commute the data. It needs to commute the trust in the data, right? And we yeah. think that, you know, when people do transactions and they say, send me copies of your documents, right? It's going to be like you asking somebody, did you bring your checkbook today? My, yeah. I haven't carried <laughs> in 30 years. Do you know what I mean? But literally people are going to say, can I have access to the data and can you prove the data? Right. Yeah. But the idea of sending copies of data around via emails is going to go away. And yeah. what we're doing, is we're creating this mechanism for a virtual data room. And rather than, you know, if you want to search for something, right, where you don't know the answer. Right. So I go and search and say, what's a good Christmas gift for my wife? Right. And I just want to see what Google, who indexed everything, says other people who are searching, they chose these things. Right. But if I'm looking for something where I know what it is. I want a multifamily housing project of at least 300 units that's in a top 25 MSA, and I want it to be a three cap or higher or a four cap or higher. And I'm looking, I'm not searching for something broadly, I'm seeking to find something. And that's what Invenium is. Invenium literally means to find. How do you find that asset and prove the data in order to deliver that thing that you are seeking to allocate capital into? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love your kind of example of sharing, you know, file sharing and stuff like that. And like for years now, I haven't sent a single document to anyone. I uploaded on Google Drive and just kind of mindful of their inbox and send them a link to a Google Drive. Like I'm not going to, you know, push your, I'm not going to be the one pushing your mailbox to the limit. But also what is usually done on the internet, usually you share files, mainly photos and videos and, you know, links and stuff like that. That's what mainly people do on the internet. And if you can, I guess... Of- yeah. Now imagine you don't have to put it in Google. You keep the docs in your own drive. You use Invenium yeah. IO to credential that, and you create a token, which is the role-based access control mechanism to gain yeah. access to that data on your systems. And there's just a, a virtual data room. And yeah. so what you're doing is because Google, while that's a great device, Google, they're there. You know, they're scraping all that data, right? And you say you know, they're, don't be evil. Don't be evil means different things to different people. But let me tell you, that data is being used to Google's benefit, right? And you say, oh, no, they don't go into data rooms. They don't use that. Yes, they do. That they are extracting data. They're not sharing it specifically, which they say. But what they're doing is they're scraping data in order to understand trends in the market. I mean, we've seen that on Facebook, right? How many photos you've sent through Facebook and they are sharing data with uh, parties that, you know, they were caught sharing data with third parties. That's super fascinating, Pat. And, you know, I love to see where it's going to go and how you guys are going to improve the internet. So tell me, like, on a very basic level, how do you start Invenium and what kind of led to the creation of the company? Sure. So we went, you know, if you go all the way back, right, I, I worked at, Raymond James, I worked at Bear Stearns. I started my own investment bank, uh, ran it, sold it 14 years later. And in a very specific market, we were kind of the globally dominant player. And we were globally dominant because we understood that market better than anybody else. And we became the oracle for how debt in that market was traded, right? We, the models that Moody's rated debt in that space, we created, and we became kind of the go-to people to understand that space's debt. And in that, we realized that better data allowed things to trade at a much better rate. And so I sold that company, became CIO of the university, which wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. So I left. And we were 
looking at what we were going to do next. And I thought data surrounding non-bank lending, right? Non-bank lending, I thought was going to explode. Banks are going to be disintermediated. And we said, okay, where's that new market going to be created? And I was introduced to the distributed ledger in 2015. I got really excited about it. I started going to a bunch of conferences and middle of 2016, put together a plan. January of 17, we were up and running and live. And we didn't want to model these transactions as code, but as data. And a lot of people, they want drop down boxes. What is this going to be? But as you know, if anybody who's been in the business for a long time, deals blow up, they just do. And they get adjudicated, right? And when they get adjudicated, what is the data that you need? And what we did is we said, listen, let's have a token have these tails, these data tails, an event series of all the performance data of that asset being collected and connected. And so we were doing that. And that's what our original tokens were. You know, when we were doing tokens in in late 17, early 18, we did about $100 million of transactions in 18. The thing that we did is nobody wanted to buy them, right? Like we had to go to family offices because even if a big institution wanted to take that, they liked the coupon, they liked the credit, but the, delivering it to them digitally, even though it integrated with their data systems, they're like, no, I got to ask my boss. This is a pain. I'm not interested in taking delivery. Custody and delivery was the problem. So we said, okay, listen, we got to be able to provide value to those assets at rest because monetizing the transaction is still years away. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we said, here we go. We got to go use this data, prove this data to provide value for large portfolios on balance sheets at rest today. And that was middle, let's say late 18. And we said, we got to pivot to this because the transactions were too hard. We weren't getting them done for various reasons. And so when that happened, we dedicated, now we have, you know, about 170 people working on our various different projects all over the place. And we've got really great customers that are beginning to onboard assets at scale And we're just adding data layers for these assets at rest, and they're getting massive accounting benefits um, and accounting release where there's better marks on those assets. And by the way, the LPs love this, right? GPs are saying, I'm going to now have Cushman and Wakefield give you a mark, or I'm going to have JLL give you the mark. And the LPs who are investing in those funds, they love that third-party nature. As a fiduciary, they can allocate more capital there. And it just, anyway, that's what we got here. I was doing more than you asked. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's all, it's fascinating, Pat. I love it. So what I really liked about kind of your bio and as a company and uh, your trajectory is kind of how aggressive you guys are. So I read that like number eight in the number of blockchain patents in the U.S. through an acquisition of a company. And then I understand like the largest patent holders are Microsoft, for example, which is, you know, obviously the big, big Web 3.0 player now kind of positioned to, to become the leader in that space. So I think you guys acquired Factum and that led to that. And also you acquired chief blockchain scientist and distinguished engineer, Paul Snow and Jay Smith, uh, respectively. How So what is your strategy in general? Like, where do you want to, what is the vision for the future? And how are these steps and moves forward helping you achieve that? So all of our patents, not all, but predominantly are around data interfacing with the smart contracts. So real world data interacting with smart contracts 
with private data oracles and public data oracles. And so how smart contracts process, process data. And so we were, we're now seventh in patents and we're the largest patent holder for a financial entity oriented entity. The rest are, you know, Intel, Microsoft. So, you know, we're significantly ahead of Fidelity or a MasterCard as far as number of patents, but it's all around how data is ingested and processed and how you interact with existing legacy systems, take that data, process it, and then you can distribute data, make allocations, make capital calls, how you can calculate a waterfall calculation for a token if there's a cap, you know, a carry. And so that's what we've been building, kind of this infrastructure around data. That's where everything about where we are. And we are we say we're chain agnostic and chain promiscuous, meaning everything chains, entropy occurs in chains too. Chains are going to die, new chains are going to come up. And if you're wedded where your functionality is too wedded to a single chain, that is a resiliency problem for large corporations. And so one of the things that we did in the Factum acquisition, we bought the assets of Factum Inc., And we plug that in, we spun that out into a new company, which is Accumulate Protocol, which is a universal middleware, which allows you, if you're using an Ethereum token, you don't have to migrate from Ethereum to Polygon, or you don't have to migrate from Ethereum to Avalanche. You can plug Accumulate in between, and you can be on both at the same time. And you can have one master smart contract that makes sure that you have enough tokens between the two that it always balances. So it's a multi-chain smart contract that you can exist instead of a smart contract on one chain only. And so what we can do is we've got a data layer that allows you to have two, three, four chains that you can operate on at the exact same time. And so what we did is we bought Factum, gave them a little bit of cash, gave them a little bit of technology, plugged them in, gave them what they need, and they, they're flying. And that's protocol right now. It's transacting about 70,000 transactions a second. We're in our you know, testnet number two will go live on mainnet later this month and or later this quarter. Sorry. And so, you know, what we're doing is we want to be the data guys for everybody, right? Whether it's because if you think about these tokens and how they exist, you need from an investor relations standpoint, you need a source of truth for the data. And that can't be a central database. And so what we're doing is we're giving you a methodology for source of truth for data as it's, it's all over the place. How do you know whether that data is good or not, right? And so what we're doing is whether you're talking about tokenization platforms, whether you're talking about trading platforms, whether you're talking about custody platforms, whether you're talking about settlement, capital call, calculation, any of those fund administration, all of those are using a little piece of our software. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And then once you have this big network of everybody who's using your data, is there a way for you to incentivize all these players to share the data between them? So A, they're not using our data. It's always their data, right? Yeah, I mean their data, right? So let's say me as a tokenization platform, solid block, we have our data, right? So you guys facilitate data storage, data transaction, data, you know, valuation mechanisms and other things, right? Let's say you have other three clients in a different category. And maybe we're interested in contributing our data to the network and using their data if they're interested in this type of exchange. Yep. And so we're doing two or three things in that space, right? So the first is we can help you monetize your data if you have a lot of data where you have your own paper query oracle for private data where you could say, hey, I'll create it. I want to create the solid block index for real estate in Israel, right? Or wherever right? You can have that for all properties that you have and you've got good data. 
will actually help you build that Oracle so that smart contracts can pull from it so that indices can be created, derivatives can be created, all that kind of stuff, right? So we'll do that. That's number one. Number two, we can facilitate on a zero knowledge basis, right? And for those people who don't know, right, zero knowledge is where there's no leakage of data, where, you know, when I walk into a bar and I want to get, you know, I want to prove I'm over 21, I show them an ID and all sorts of data leaks. They know now where I live, what my real name is, et cetera. But when you get to be my age and they look at the white in my beard, that's my zero knowledge proof. They don't know my where I live. They don't know my birthday. They don't know my name, but they know I'm over 21, right? How do you do zero knowledge proofs of an asset performance without giving away you know, information? And so those zero knowledge proofs, we're working on something called ZK raised proofs. And a ZK snark is the typical zero knowledge proof that's used. And a ZK snark is what's called a succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge. What we're doing is we're doing what are called ZK-raised, which is a randomized anonymous interaction with specific data sets. And where you can go through is say, here's the data set on my property. How do I compare against your data set in certain key metrics? And you can, we'll, we'll give that reporting on how you're doing back without giving away the private information. But it gets even better than that because you have people like, the biggest pension funds in the world, right? And they pay people like MasterCard to give them data about how people are spending money, right? But they want to know, is MasterCard gaming the data? But MasterCard won't show them the data sets. So we do these ZK raised where you can do what's called an R squared or correlation. Is there any data in their global data set that our bot looks at that has a correlation of above this that's not in the data set that they're comparing to yours? And so what we're doing is not only are we comparing the data sets, but we're ensuring the data sets are, are not doctored. Does that make sense? So that you're not gaming your data set where that's what was happening in it, you know, yeah. game market. So we have these VK rays that we're working on, which is pretty fun, huh? Yeah, it is really fun. Like this is, again, this all goes back to trust and trustless environment. So actually another thing I thought that was really interesting in your personal bio and background like a faith-based financial products, which I didn't even know that that existed for the Catholic market. You know, all heard about halal and like Jewish products. And I didn't know there was, <laughs> was also a Catholic uh, angle to it, which is really, really cool. So, you know, and I think I find, I find it very interesting how your background and several uh, involvements that you had with the Catholic institutional markets and the Catholic Answers Live and the National Catholic Register and many other places is kind of, to me, goes a little bit in line with this whole, you know, trust-based or faith-based approach. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And it's really communicating the real creditworthiness of that borrower of this asset. And what we did in that faith-based market, and we served all sorts of faith-based clients, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, you name it. But we were, you know, the largest lender to the Catholic church in the world for about a decade. And wow. in that process, the previous lenders would lend against real estate, but nobody wants to foreclose on St. Agnes Church, right? What are you going to do with it? So they were charging very expensive rates. And what we used to do is go in and show what is the actual cash flow of these charities? Because they would raise a bunch of money, they would invest it in real estate assets that they're never going to sell, and they would be broke. But we could show that this perpetual process of the ability to raise capital that they were actually, and we, we would recast the financials, the markets bought it, we dramatically improved the cost of their borrowing, 
but also for large ones. So, you know, the cathedral in Oakland, California, we finance that. And, you know, that's right there on Lake Alameda. It's kind of a high profile. But one of the things that we did is it used to be that faith-based organizations were considered non-essential single source of revenue providers. Oh, wow. Non-essential to the community. What we did is we actually went in and said Alameda County, the county there, that if the diocese of Oakland went under and those Catholic schools went away, literally the, the county would have to declare bankruptcy. Right. And so we got them considered what are essential. We saw, we proved the, the default. We got their ratings bumped dramatically. And what we did is through better data, got the better cost of capital. Does that make sense? And Absolutely. that's what we're doing today. It's just better data that people can trust for a more accurate reflection of what you're doing. Absolutely. And I personally remember an example. I, I don't know if it was in Israel or in Europe. One of our investors and advisors is an appraiser. And so uh, he was asked to appraise also either a synagogue or a church for a loan, for a renovation loan, right? So how do you appraise a church? And then he did a whole lesson on, you know, on different value, value of that, of that real estate. So, you know, it's super fascinating. It is fascinating, right? Like, because we got called into both, you know, everything from faith-based organizations to giant aquariums <laughs> and symphony halls. So anything that was donation-driven, yeah. That you had to say, what's the rely? What's the likelihood that the donation is going to occur or recur? We became kind of the the experts on that. Does that yeah. make sense? That is really cool. I love it. So we're coming to an end of the podcast, unfortunately. Maybe we'll do another one because it's just so fun. But I wanted to ask you about, you know, is there anything that you're special that you're planning in 2022 that you want to share with us? You know, we're we're making some announcements. You know, we've been doing a lot lately. We're making some announcements in the next couple of weeks where we are deepening our partnerships with some of the biggest global exchanges in the world. So some of the biggest stock markets, some of the biggest DeFi players, where both we're collaborating, where we're making joint investments in companies, and where we're starting to work together to help large asset owners begin tokenizing the data so that the asset can then be tokenized so that then the asset can trade on a secondary market. But if you don't have good data for an asset that's going to be tokenized, that's going to sit on a, that's not going to trade every day, right? Like you tokenize a real estate asset, it's not trading, you know, you know, multiple times a day. It used to trade maybe, you know, think the World Trade Center, that would trade every 15 to 30 years, and maybe pieces of the capital stack would ever trade every eight to 10 years, but you got to get the GP involved, it's a pain in the neck. That's not going to trade every minute or every second, but it might trade three to four times a year. And if we can value the cap, the asset, value the capital stack, then the capital stack will trade more frequently. And what that does is with those better valuations, more frequent trading, you're going to start to see this. And, and let me give you an example. High yield bonds. Those used to be what are called level three, IFRS 13, ASC 820, level three assets, illiquid assets. When they went to level two, where they had better data inputs, the market grew 10x and trading grew 100x. We don't know if trading will grow, grow 100x in real estate, but let me tell you, we think the market in real estate is going to grow dramatically, but also in infrastructure assets. When you have better data and you can hold it on your balance sheet better, you've got more players, more institutional players allocated. And when that happens, we think people like you who are going to have tokenized assets on your platform you're just going to see a lot more players driving throughput. Gotcha. That is so cool. Can't wait to see where it's going to go. And we're going to do with that technology this year. 
So Pat, it's so exciting to have you here. Just maybe one quick question. Where do you live today? I know you guys were thinking about moving to Miami. Where do you so, live? So I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? And I've lived here for the last 15 years. As long as my wife wants to live here, I'm going to live here. And so, you She's know, I'm art, right? Your wife, something art related. Your wife is uh, in. She's a work of art. I think she's beautiful and she creates a great family and we work together as a team. Uh-huh. But anyway, I used to go to New York six to 10 days a month for the last 13 years. And that's where our main office was. But the reality is the pandemic has been great. I'm here more, but we're moving our headquarters from New York to Miami. We as the shareholders, as shareholders, we voted and proved that move. Uh, we, we've, we're making the move legally and physically. We'll still have a New York office, but we also have a Michigan office up here. And we have a whole lot of people. I have probably about 60 some employees in Europe and the rest are here in the U.S. Okay. Wow. Very, very cool. So we'll uh, come visit with you in uh, some of those locations. <laughs> hey, we love it. Next time you're in Miami, you give me some heads up notice and I'll be there. But I'd love to be back here on your podcast. And I think you're doing great work. And whatever we can do to support you, you let us know. All right. Amazing, Patrick. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on the podcast. So this is uh, Block Solid. You can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website, solidblog.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word and check out Invenium. Thank you.